All right, well, uh, we are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, and we come to a very warm and just a meaningful message that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders. And it's a lengthy section. I'm going to read it. It's actually not that long in the grand scheme of things, but I want us to zero in on one verse. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and we're going to eventually zero in here on verse uh, 21. But I'm focusing today on this concept of repentance. Repentance is probably one of the most misunderstood terms in the Bible. And it's interesting because it's used comparatively scarcely in the Old and New Testament alike, and yet it's kind of become elevated and taken on a meaning of its own, and people just really don't understand what this concept of repentance is. So I'm going to Uh, take advantage of the fact that Paul uses this term as he's addressing these elders, and we're just going to talk about this concept of repentance. But let me, as we always do, uh, put this in historical context as we continue the flow of thought here uh, in Acts. Paul's uh, third missionary journey is winding down. Uh, He left Ephesus after the riot that we talked about a few weeks ago in 56 AD. It was May of that year. So he leaves Ephesus, he heads to Troas first, and then to Macedonia. He spends six months in Macedonia. We talked about this last week, and that's where he writes uh, 2 Corinthians. He leaves Macedonia, heads to Corinth. He winters in Corinth, 56-57 AD, and while he's there, he writes Romans, the book of Romans from Corinth. So he leaves Corinth at the end of February in 57. Uh, Winter is winding down. And Luke tells us in uh, the book of Acts that Paul was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost, which in 57 A.D. would have been May 26th. So Paul really wanted to be in Jerusalem for a Pentecost. He travels through Greece. He stops at various cities along the way. He skips Ephesus. I mentioned that last week because, of course, he just escaped from there after the big riot. Um, But uh, he makes his way to Jerusalem, and he arrives on the eve of Pentecost, May 25th. Pentecost, as I said, being the next day on the 26th of May. And that officially ends his third missionary journey. Well, within four days of arriving in Jerusalem, Paul is arrested, and the rest of Acts that we're going to pick up with next week uh, concerns Paul's various trials and his journey to Rome and all of his things that happen after his missionary uh, journeys. So Acts, the book of Acts ends with Paul's arrival in Rome. Remember, he's frequently talked about how he can't wait to get to Rome. When you read the book of Romans, he says he's not been there yet, but he desires to preach the gospel in Rome. He tells us that in Romans in chapter 15, I think it is. Um, but the book of Acts ends with Paul's first Roman imprisonment in February of 60 A.D., So, here we are in Acts chapter 20 in the immediate context. One of Paul's stops during this rapid tour of Greece on his way to Jerusalem is a little town called Miletus. And he arrives in Miletus on April 29th, 57 A.D., and he summons the elders from Ephesus so that he can address them. Now, you might say, well, why didn't he just go to them? Well, again, remember what an uproar there had been in Ephesus, and so it was just easier to have this meeting Uh, off-site somewhere else. So he holds the meeting in Miletus, and Luke records Paul's message to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17 all the way to verse 38. And it's really a fascinating uh, 
passage. Let me just sort of summarize it, and then I want to read it, and I'll stop along the way and make a, a few comments. But Paul basically reviews his nearly three-year ministry that he had with these men. Remember, he spent two years and eight months in Ephesus. Um, he appeals to the way he lived among them as an example and urges them to remain faithful as well and follow his example. He emphasized his sorrows that he had while he was there. He emphasized the opposition uh, and enemies of the gospel that he faced. He stresses in this message his faithfulness in proclaiming the word of God to them and the whole counsel of God to them. He, he, gives, he kind of reviews his evangelistic enterprise and efforts that he engaged in while he was there. And talks about how he had taught the Bible in Ephesus for these two, two years and eight months from house to house and at different house churches. So let me read and just kind of put yourself in the mindset of this first century experience. You know, remember Paul spent all this time with them, then he summons them. And listen to what he says and try to capture Paul's heart. So picking up Acts chapter 20, verse 17. By the way, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got a whole stack of them out there in the lobby. Feel free to take one as our gift to you. Uh, and if you do have a Bible, feel free to follow along. I'm not going to put this whole text on the screen, but I am going to put some other verses on the uh, screen here uh, in a moment. And, and also want to apologize. I know it's a little bit warm in here and a little lot of people in here. We appreciate you coming out. We are working on some planning and to, ways to try to expand uh, our auditorium. Uh, and so thanks for your patience, but uh, it, it's kind of fun being packed in here with brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, I mean, depends on, you know, what the person next to you smells like, I guess. But anyway, for most of us, I think it's, it's pretty good. Uh, but anyway, seriously, thank you for your patience. And um, so verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the verse we're going to focus in on. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that change and tribulations await me. So the Holy Spirit had told Paul, as he continued these journeys as when heading back to, and was heading back to Jerusalem, that trouble awaited. It's also interesting to note that you know, this is 2,000 years ago, and to this day, Jerusalem is the center of both Christian and Jewish worship. Uh, remember, Jerusalem, of course, was the center of Hebrew worship until the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D., some 24 years earlier from where we're reading, and then it became the foundational birthplace of Christianity as well. Of course, today it's also headquarters of Islam, but that didn't come for centuries later when it was made up by some demon-obsessed man. But Christianity and Judaism both trace their roots to Jerusalem, and so that's why Paul is concerned going back to Ju Jerusalem because these Jews that were unbelievers considered him the enemy. He had been a Pharisee persecuting Christians and murdering Christians. He got saved when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. Now he's out there proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ and the unbelieving Jewish leaders who, like the church leaders, were headquartered in Jerusalem, weren't happy about it. So the Holy Spirit had warned him when he gets back to Jerusalem, he's probably going to be arrested. 
But verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. Remember we talked in our nine o'clock hour about last week how Paul talked about running the race so that he would win the prize and be rewarded at the fame of judgment with a crown and not be disqualified from earning that reward. And so here is his reference again as he's talking to these Ephesian elders that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of the grace of God. And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. I mean, he knows. This is probably the last chance he's, he's going to see him. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I'm preaching the word. Let the chips fall where they may. I meant no harm to anyone. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherds. Verse 28 here is one of several places in the New Testament where the three Greek terms used to refer to the office of church leader are all used interchangeably. So he's talking to elders, which is the Greek word presbyteros. He calls them overseers, which is the Greek word episkopos. And he tells them to shepherd, which is the verb form of the Greek word pastor, poimen. So you know, all three of those words, one has to do with spiritual a doctrinal oversight, one has to do with pastoral care and shepherding, the other has to do with administrative leadership. All three of them are wrapped up in this one word, elder, uh, that the churches have uh, then and even now. So shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So already early on in the church, Paul is warning about false teachers coming in and disrupting things. He had already experienced that after his first missionary journey in southern Galatia. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. In other words, some of these elders will fall away to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who also were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you have a, a red letter English translation, those words are in red anytime you see the words of Christ. This is an interesting quote because Paul is quoting Jesus here, but we don't find this quote anywhere in the Gospels. Of course, we know it's the Word of God because it's inspired by Luke, the author of Acts, to be included in the Word of God. So it, indeed, Jesus clearly said it, but it's just interesting that it wasn't contained in the Gospels. So Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Remember last week we talked about the importance of community and the, the, that uh, concept. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to uh, the ship. So just I just think that's a really warm passage. It gives us a glimpse into Paul's personal relationship with these men and the sadness that they knew that they probably would not see each other. Again, now one of the key comments that Paul makes, as I said, is found in verse 21, where he describes his ministry as testifying repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about 
repentance. What is repentance? Peter, uh, Stephen, John, Paul, all of the early church leaders sought to get the Jews and then later the Gentiles to repent, to change their view about God, and believe the gospel. What does the Bible say about repentance? You know, this term has taken on a variety of meanings throughout church history. Does repent mean to stop sinning? Does it mean turn your life around? Does it mean forsake all your old ways? What does it mean to repent? Well, we're going to find that out. So the Greek word, the noun, is used 22 times in the New Testament. And we're going to look at that in a second. The verb is used 34 times. This is what I mean by the fact that it's a comparatively rare term. It's mostly used in uh, the Gospels and Acts. It's not used that often in the epistles. But, you know, total counting the noun and the verb 56 times. And, uh, and yet it's kind of become elevated to take on an identity of its own. When we talk about the Greek word, we're talking about a compound word, meta-naeo. Meta-naeo. Meta means afterward. Naeo is a verb that means I think. So the idea is I think again or I think afterward. That is to change the mind. If you look it up in a Greek dictionary, that's what you'll find is the definition, to change one's mind. So what does it mean to repent? Well, it means to change your mind. So whenever you see the word repent, you should just insert change your mind. And that begs the question about what? Context always determines meaning, so when the Bible is using the term repent as the verb or repentance as the noun, we should think, change your mind about what? If we go back to the text, Paul says, I'm testifying, I have been testifying to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God, a change of mind about God. And this, as I said, is precisely what Paul and the other church leaders had been doing for some 24 years. They all needed to change their view about God. They needed to understand that God is not some distant rule maker who is pleased and placated only by keeping the letter of the law. You don't gain favor, Paul said to the Jews, by meticulously keeping the 613 laws of the Torah. God's not some cosmic sheriff waiting for you to step out of line. He's a God of grace who provided redemption through His only Son, Jesus Christ. See, the Jews needed to change their mind about God and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Likewise, the Gentiles had a wrong view of God. Their view was influenced by the pagan deities of their day, little d. Greek and Roman mythology, strange ancient Near Eastern religions, they all had these weird views about some type of God, again, little g. But they needed to recognize there is only one God, the creator of the universe, the one and only God, and that salvation can only be found through His eternal Son, Jesus. That's the message that Paul had for the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17. Trust your mind, uh, change your mind, and trust in Jesus. Excuse me. <clears throat> so there are a lot of other passages where repentance, of course, means change of mind, and every time you have to ask, change your mind about what? For example, in Acts chapter 11, Peter, after the salvation of Cornelius and his family, says to the church leaders in Jerusalem who were kind of questioning this concept of Gentile salvation, he says, when they heard these things, they became silent, <coughs> excuse me, and glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Cornelius and his family had changed their mind. They recognized that salvation was not found based on what they do, but rather who they know. 
and they needed to trust in Jesus Christ, as Peter plainly told them. Uh, it's the same thing, as I mentioned, we see with Paul's sermon at Mars Hill. He said uh, to the Athenian philosophers, these times of ignorance, notice the reference there to what you know, God overlooked. But now God commands all men everywhere to repent. You need to rethink this, guys. You need to rethink your understanding of eternity and, and man's destiny. You need, to un- you need to change your way of thinking and recognize that only through a relationship with Jesus Christ can you have eternal life. Jesus used it the same way. In uh, Luke 24, Jesus said, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance, a change of mind, and remission of sins should be preached in his name. only way you can have forgiveness of sins is by believing in the name of Jesus. That's very clear. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But that necessitates a change of mind, doesn't it? Every person that has come to faith in Christ, every person that's been born again by faith, in that moment, by definition, had a change of mind. I was six years old when I trusted in Christ. And as a young six-year-old, I didn't have a lot of baggage. I hadn't been influenced by worldly wisdom and all the things that come with growing up as an unbeliever. But I nevertheless understood that something had to change. That if I was going to go to heaven, I needed to stop trusting in my own behavior and in anything and everything that I thought might save me. And I had to shift my faith to the one and only person who took my penalty on the cross, died for my sins, and rose from the dead. So I, didn't, I couldn't have given you a theology of repentance. I couldn't have given you a theology of much as a young six-year-old. But I knew I was a sinner who needed a Savior. And in that moment, I changed my mind and said, Jesus, I can't save myself. I'm trusting you to save me. And I've been born again ever since. And if you know the Lord, you have similar experiences at different ages, I'm sure. The writer of Hebrews explains the relationship between repentance and faith this way. Talking to Jewish believers, he says, I don't need to lay again, I don't need to tell you again about repentance from dead works and faith toward God. See, that's essentially how you could describe any Jew that got saved. Any Jew that got saved had to abandon their legalistic, performance-based approach to salvation, thinking that if they dotted their I's and crossed their T's, they were going to get in, like the Pharisees. They had to abandon that, repentance from dead works, and instead have faith toward God by trusting in His Son and our Savior. Uh, Peter uses the word this way. He says, God is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, just using the term there as a general term for changing your mind about Christ and instead trusting in Him. So when it comes to repentance and salvation... It's simply a matter of changing your mind about Christ, trusting in Jesus as the only one who can forgive sin and and provide eternal life. Sadly, thanks to a lot of bad teaching out there and bad theology, many people think that repentance has an entirely different meaning. Somehow they think that if you're really going to get to heaven, you've got to turn from all your sins. You've got to forsake all your evil ways. You've got to make a promise or pledge to follow Christ. You have to clean up your life. You'll even see this uh, articulated in some gospel tracts where you know, they lead you right up to the moment of salvation. You know, gospel tracts generally do a good job about explaining the problem. Where they all go awry and fumble the ball isn't telling you the solution. And so a lot of times they'll come to that point and they'll say, well, if you really want to go to heaven, then here's what you've got to do. You've got to make a U-turn. You've got to repent of all your sins and stop sinning and promise to follow God. And then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, as if salvation is a two-step process. 
But more than 160 times in the New Testament alone, salvation is conditioned upon one thing and one thing alone, and that's faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, this teaching, this false teaching about repentance, has become so prevalent that when, as I said at the outset, when people hear the term repent, they instinctively think, I've got to stop doing something that I was doing that's wrong. Like if someone came running in the back door right now and just hollered, repent, the first thing that would pop into most people's mind is, oh, what do they know that I know? What am I doing that I need to stop doing? What, what behavior am I in trouble for? Repent and tends to imply to people, change your behavior. But as I've shown you, that's not what the term means in God's Word. And we need to use Bible words with Bible definitions, not Bible words with man-made definitions that have come along over 2,000 years. So repent means to change your mind. And I can prove this, by the way, even if we didn't have the you know, etym etymology of it as well as the lexical definitions of it. But how many of you know that the Old Testament was once translated into Greek? The Hebrew was translated directly into Greek about 285 years before Christ. That was called the Septuagint. You know that? Uh, the Septuagint used Greek to translate the Old Testament. And we see some interesting phrases, and I'm going to quote here the King James, but in Exodus 32, for example, after the golden image of the calf... God and Moses are talking, and uh, God offers to destroy the Israelites as a consequence of that rebellion. And all, this basically was God's way of testing Moses. Is Moses going to stand by the ministry that God had given him to help lead the children of Israel? Or is he going to say, these dummies, forget them. Go ahead and strike them all dead, God. And Moses passed the test. But notice what the text says. The Lord repented of the things which he had thought to do unto his people. When they translated this verse into Greek, guess which word they used there? Metanoeo, repent. In fact, the New American Standard, if some of you have that translation, actually uses that translation. Same passage, Exodus 32, the Lord changed his mind about the harm that he would said he would do. Now, setting aside for the moment the theology of what does it mean for God to change his mind, that's a whole other sermon. Uh, this is what we call, a, I won't leave you hanging, I'll give you at least a thumbnail sketch of what it means this is what we call an anthropomorphism god is speaking to us in human terms so that we can understand we know by comparing scripture from scripture scripture with scripture that god never god is immutable we're going to talk about this wednesday night by the way as we talk about the eternality of god and how god is odd temporal and we're temporal and what that means so don't be concerned about this phrase my point is simply to show you that god repented so repentance in and of itself cannot have anything to do with sin, because I think we all agree God never sinned. So whatever repentance means, it doesn't mean stop sinning, otherwise the Bible would not tell us that God repented, because God never sinned. See this again in Amos, the prophet, same thing, the Lord repented. Once again, the NASB translates this, the Lord changed his mind. So if God can repent, then repentance certainly doesn't always have a connection to sin. It doesn't always relate to sinful behavior. So we go back to our text, repentance means to change your mind about God, to change your mind about God, to trust in Jesus. See, everyone uh, is trusting in something to get them to heaven. For uh, Muslims, it might be the, the five uh, pillars of Islam. For unbelieving Catholics, it might be the seven sacraments. For other religions, it might be some other steps to nirvana or whether, whatever it is. People, everyone is trusting in something to get them to heaven or paradise or whatever they call it. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life, that constitutes 
a change of mind. You have repented. You may or may not stop sinning. <laughs> how many of you are Christians here today? Raise your hand if you've trusted in Christ. And how many of you still sin? Okay, most of you. Good. Um, so we're, we're taking names. Uh, no, uh, of course. Of course we know that. We know that uh, experientially, but more importantly, we know that biblically. That as believers, we can cater to the flesh. And when we do, there comes with consequences. And it, it, sin always leads to great unpleasantness. It's not something we should ever do. But it's a fact. As long as we're in this body sold under sin, we're going to sin. And the spiritual maturity comes from trusting God, walking by faith, not by sight, walking after the Spirit, not after the flesh. And over time, you know, we, we bring into captivity those thoughts and we're, we're living godly, spiritually mature lives. But sinning isn't the problem in terms of getting a sinner out of heaven. It's sin. We're all born sinners, Romans 5.12, or Ephesians 2.1, born dead in our trespasses and sin. And that sin has a steep penalty. The wage of sin is death, eternal separation from God, and a literal place of torment called hell. And that sin has to be judiciously dealt with. And the only way that we can have, you know, Adam's sin, which is imputed to us, be replaced with Christ's righteousness imputed to us is by faith. By faith. If you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1, I don't have it on the screen, but in Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with the Lord. What does justified mean? To be declared righteous. So, sin is the problem. And only by faith in Christ can you have that sin forgiven and you are declared righteous before a holy God. But the fact of the matter is, even as believers, we still have that old man, new man struggle, that flesh-spirit struggle that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. And that's really the task of the believer, is to, to, to walk after the Spirit. So, to think that somehow you've got to stop sinning to be saved is not only unbiblical, it's really absurd, because it's impossible. But So, repentance, as it relates to salvation, means to change your mind about God and trust in Christ alone for salvation. But sometimes the Bible calls on us to repent. <coughs> Excuse me. I did a two-hour uh, interview Friday night that just about wiped my voice out, and I thought it was fine until about halfway through this sermon, and I discovered, as you did, that it's not. But anyway, believers sometimes are called to change their mind about a few things in life, such as our behavior. You know, when you fall in love with sinful behavior, you need to recognize that's a that's a problem, and you need to change your mind about it. Um, you know. We, we, we sometimes forget who we are in Christ, and we live like the old man. Paul talks about this in Romans 6-8, through 8, that having put on the new man, why would we want to walk in the old man? He doesn't use that old man, new man terminology in Romans. He uses that in Colossians and Ephesians, but he talks about this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Remember Romans chapter 7? Paul says, you know, the things that I know I should do, I don't do, and the things that I know I shouldn't do, sometimes I do them. O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, how does he get rescued? By trusting in Christ. By walking after the Spirit and not after the flesh. So, sin has consequences. We already talked about Romans 6.23 from an unbeliever's perspective. If you, if, your sin, uh, if you remain in your sin and never trust in Christ for forgiveness of sin, then you're going to die an eternal death. But it also has consequences physically in the life of a believer. See, sin is an equal opportunity offender. It does not care whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever and you sin, you're just doing what comes naturally for unbelievers. And if you never trust in Christ, you'll die and spend eternity in hell. If you're a believer and you sin, you're doing what comes unnatural for a believer. 
the new man in Christ, the new woman in Christ, should not live like a sinner. That's not what Christ in us is producing. The old man is producing that, but not the new man. And so we see repeated references about the dangers of sin in the life of believers. For example, James, the Lord's brother, says, Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. John, the apostle, says, There's sin that leads to death. All unrighteousness is sin, and there's sin that's not leading to death. But you better believe it, that sin will kill. Sin will kill. That's why Paul said, going back to Romans 6 through 8, in chapter 8, he said, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again and again, the Bible testifies to the fact that godly living prolongs life. Sinful living shortens life. Now, that's not an automatic, because we live in a fallen world, where Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and we live in a time of injustice, and sometimes godly saints die young, and sometimes dirty, rotten, filthy sinners live to a ripe old age. But enough about Klaus Schwab. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help it. Um, so the, it's not an automatic, but it certainly is a principle. And we see this principle again and again in Proverbs. As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Or Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. See, God knows best. And so we fear the Lord. If we reverence him, if we follow him, we're going to miss the pitfalls of life. Now, sadly, and our hearts cry out for justice and retribution, sadly, Sometimes godly people still die. They're murdered or they killed in an accident by a drunk driver. This is a fallen world. And by the way, God didn't make it that way. We did. You know, sometimes people shake their fist. God, why do you allow this to happen? And God's going, look, I created the earth perfect. And you guys messed it up. And nevertheless, I'm going to fix it. Even though I didn't cause the problem, I'm going to fix it. And he sent his son to pay the penalty for sin so that we can have eternal salvation. And then someday that same Jesus Christ that died for your sins is going to come back and make all things new. And as we watch the world falling apart around us, as discouraging as it is, it should also fill us with hope because it just reminds us that someday Christ is going to come back and put all the pieces back together again. Amen? Amen. So, uh, again, this is just a principle. We see it again in Proverbs 14. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. <laughs> Uh, Proverbs 14, 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, to turn one away from the snares of death. One of my favorite references in Proverbs to this reality that sin is a killer, ultimately, is Proverbs 21, 16, A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. That's a, quite a poetic way of putting it, and that, that is that sinful behavior leads to great unpleasantness. And so in that sense, everyone by the way, believers and unbelievers, should repent about their behavior. You should change your mind about your behavior. That's not going to get you to heaven. See, think about it. A, an unbeliever who, let's say they're performing the worst possible sins. I mean, they're just involved in every licentious behavior you can imagine. And then, having never heard or believed the gospel, one day they just have a crisis of conscience. Maybe they go on, you know, Dr. Phil or something, and he says, do these three things and your life will be better. So they walk out of that meeting and they decide, cold turkey, I'm going to quit all this terrible behavior. Does that make them a Christian? Are they going to heaven? I mean, if you could go to heaven by doing that, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins? You just can't be 
you know, good enough or correct your behavior enough to measure up to God's standard of holiness. God says, Jesus said, you've got to be perfect like my Heavenly Father is perfect. And the only way to do that is to have Christ's righteousness given to you as a free gift, which you receive by faith. So everybody needs to change their behavior. I mean, if I'm dealing with an unbeliever who's steeped in, you know, drug abuse and other harmful behaviors that could kill them, I, I'm going to try to deal with the, those symptoms too because they're playing with death, and I want them to get cleaned up at some point and hopefully where they can mentally understand the gospel. And, but So there's a, there's a dual urgency here. They need to be saved from the penalty of sin by faith alone in Christ alone. But, you know, there's also this danger that at any moment you could overdose, right? So everybody needs to repent of their behavior in the sense of changing their mind about it, realizing that it's harmful and, and you know, changing their behavior. But that doesn't save you. It's not by works of righteousness which we do, but according to His mercy He has saved us. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul says, to him who works, the wages are counted not counted as grace, but as debt. And to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, that is, trusting in Christ, then your faith is counted as righteousness. So you can try all day, every day, your entire life to work your way into heaven by repenting of your sinful deeds, and it will never result in eternal salvation. Because we're saved by grace through faith alone. The Bible tells us if it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. See, the two don't go together. That's the point. Sometimes I'll be talking to people who don't know the Lord, you know, at a conference or just in a private conversation, and they'll say, you know, I just don't deserve grace. And I'll go, bingo, you just figured it out. Because if you deserved it, it's not grace. What we deserve is justice. That's what we deserve. And grace is undeserved favor. And God, you know, demonstrated His grace in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we're sinners, Christ died for us. Imagine that. A sinner such as I. So changing your behavior never saves anyone. You simply don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. That's the bottom line. So when it comes to salvation, repentance means a change of mind about Christ. It goes something like this. I used to think I could save myself by my good works, but I've changed my mind. I've repented. And now I see that only Jesus can save me, and I am trusting in Him to give me the free gift of eternal life. For believers, if you're here today and you already know the Lord, here's what you need to know about the biblical view of repentance. I recognize that my behavior does not conform to the image of Christ within me. I'm changing my mind about my behavior, and I'm choosing to walk in righteous behavior that pleases God and reflects who I am in Christ, my identity in Christ. So what's the takeaway? Well, here's the takeaway. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to change your mind right now. Whatever you think is going to get you to heaven, maybe your heritage, maybe your religion, your behavior, Maybe you think because you were baptized as an infant. Whatever it is, that's not going to do it. The Bible is clear. Only one way to heaven, and that's by faith in Jesus Christ. So change your mind and trust in Him. If you're a Christian, then the takeaway is to change your mind about your behavior and, be, and live out 
your new life in Christ. Either way, the takeaway is the same. Repent and live. Repent and live eternally by trusting in Christ. Repent and live a godly Christian life by changing your mind about your errors in thinking and your errors in behavior. Let's uh, pray together, and then I've got one thing I want to do before we do our closing song. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, time. Thank you for the warm message that we read that Paul gave to these Ephesian elders. And Lord, we just know that was a special time. And Lord, it illustrates the common bond that we have as believers that uh, is signified by your indwelling Holy Spirit and has been around now for 2,000 years. And so Lord, draw us closer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to encourage one another to restore those who maybe need to repent and change their thinking about certain actions and uh, behaviors. But Lord, most of all, we pray that if there's someone within the sound of my voice that doesn't know your Son and our Savior, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. And in simple, childlike faith, they would trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen.